Thank you for uh, leading us in worship this morning. It's good to be here. It's good to come together to worship God, to uh, engage with one another, to encourage each other, and to, um, to worship together and to bring God that glory and praise. How did the world get in such a mess? Unless you live in some paradise somewhere that I'm not aware of, the world's a mess, isn't it? There's, there's so many wrong problems. The world is such a mess. How did it get in such a mess? And is there a solution? It, it's a question that we need to ask. It's a question worth asking. And everywhere we look, we see pain, we see suffering, we see poverty, we see breakdown of families, we see greed, we see injustice, we see corruption. Everywhere we look, and the current refugee crisis in the Middle East and in Eastern and Central Europe is an all too relevant example of the problems of the world. So many different problems going on there, and the world's in such a mess. But why is it in such a mess? How did it get so bad? Well, the answer to that question, believe it or not, is found in four trees, four trees that are found in the first few chapters of Genesis in the Bible. We've been looking at the first 11 chapters together, uh, as a church, and we're going to continue doing that over the next few weeks. And we're seeing how every single doctrine, belief, thing that we practice as Christians, that we build our faith and our life upon, is rooted and is foundational in those first 11 chapters. And we're seeing how all of the things that we live by and as Christians put our faith and trust in, it all is rooted back there in those first 11 chapters. And in these first few chapters, we get this story of, or, or true account, not just a story, true account of four trees. These, the first group of trees, it's not, a, it's not a single tree, it's a whole group of trees. And it's a group of trees that speak to us of God's goodness, of God's provision. At the minute, as I say, we're working through these first 11 chapters and we're seeing that everything we have is rooted there. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we take these first chapters of Genesis so seriously, that we treat them as the factual records that they are. These are not myths, it's not symbolism. These are factual records. If you want to chat with me afterwards about the reliability of Genesis as a factual document, then do come and chat with me. I'll be, I'll be delighted to do that. But these are real, this is a real factual account, and it's so important that we, that, we, that we take Genesis seriously and read it as such. So what are these four trees? What's this first tree or this first group of trees, these trees of God's provision that I mentioned? Well, in Genesis 1, verse 29, as God has just created, as he's just created Adam, he speaks to Adam and he says something to him. He says, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It was very good. When God created the world, God saw what he created and as he looked at it, he said, it is very good. God's creation was marked by beauty. It was marked by peace. It was marked by perfection. It was marked by completeness and wholeness. It was a world without all the things that we've looked at briefly this morning. The things that we have to live with of ugliness and war and degradation and brokenness and poverty and, and, and injustice. It was a world without sin and death because ultimately it is sin that is at the root cause of all these problems. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. There was no sin. Sin hadn't entered into the world. God created a man from the dust and a woman from the man's side and he placed them there right at the center of a perfect world, a world of God's goodness. And the trees that surrounded them, that God had provided, spoke of God's goodness, spoke of God's provision for them and for humanity. Everything that they needed to be and needed to have had been provided for God, by God. They didn't need anything else. 
They didn't need to become anything else. God had provided everything that they needed right there. These were trees of God's provision. In the perfect world that God created, two people, a man and a woman, lived in harmony with one another. They lived in harmony with the created world around them, and most importantly, they lived in harmony with God. They had this wonderful relationship with God. God would walk with them in the garden. He would come. There was this amazing relationship between the Creator and his two creatures, Adam and Eve. It was a world without pain. There was no suffering. There was no greed. There was no selfishness. There was no death. And it was a world of perfect provision. But it was also a world of freedom of choice. Choice or free will is a gift of God that God gives to mankind. He gave it to Adam and Eve and therefore to all of us. God didn't create us as robots. He could have done. He could have created us so that we did exactly what he wanted us to do, but he didn't. He gave us that freedom to choose. To choose whether or not we worship him. To choose, to choose whether or not we trust him. To choose whether or not we serve and trust and obey him. Or whether we exclude him from our lives and whether we exclude him from our life and our world. And this freedom of choice was centered upon one command. So we're going to read about this command. We're going to read the wider uh, account this factual account of what happens. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn with me, we're going to read from Genesis 2, 15 and 17, and then we're going to flip over to verse 25 of chapter 2. We're going to read right the way through to 24, verse 24 of chapter 3. If you haven't got a Bible, you can just listen. That's fine. Uh, all the verses are on your outline on your chair. So if you want to use the outline this morning, then uh, that's there for you if that's helpful to you. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then down to chapter 2, verse 25. Chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And then on into chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat, free, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. 
Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and his wife had a very simple choice. Would they, would they put God first? Would they trust in God? Would they put God first? And would they trust him to provide for them? Would they trust him that who they were, what they'd been given, and the circumstances that they found themselves in were right for them? Would they trust God that he knew what he was doing and that he knew best? Or would they take things into their own hands? Would they doubt? Would they take matters into their own hands and do things their way? And God had given them the ability to both make that choice and to carry it on in either direction. And so at this point, a third character is introduced to us, Satan. At some point, between the seventh day of creation and the, the first sin of Adam, which we've read about today in Genesis chapter 3, some point between the seventh day and Genesis chapter 3, Satan had rebelled in heaven. Satan was created by God. He was the chief of the angels, and he was created when all the other angels were created during these six days of creation. He was the chief of the angels, he was an amazing being, yet he had decided to rebel against God, and he sought to replace God, which was an utterly insane thing to do. And the contest was completely one-sided, it would never be anything else. Satan is no match for the all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal God. And so Satan was cast out of heaven, along with the angels that had sided with him. And it's really important this morning that we're not fooled into thinking that Satan is more than he actually is. Satan is not equal to God in power. Satan thought that he was, deceived himself, and in his pride he sought to uh, fight against God. Satan is not the same as God. Satan is powerful, but when compared to God, he is nothing. Satan is a created being. God is the creator. God is uncreated. He's eternal. He's the creator. And Satan is one of his created beings. Created by God but a creature that rebelled against God and chose to go his own way. So we're not looking at two equals fighting it out throughout history. This isn't yin and yang, two opposite forces fighting together. This is God the creator and one of his created beings, always subject to God in everything. We're looking at a fallen angel who, since he fell, has had one desire. Satan's one desire is to spoil and to destroy all that is good, all that is from God. And so along comes Satan, having indwelt, having possessed this real literal snake. It wasn't just a snake, this was Satan possessing this snake, indwelling it. And it might seem strange to us, a talking snake, but clearly it wasn't to Adam's wife. And she entered into conversation with this snake, probably without realizing who she was really talking to. She didn't really understand who this was. And that should be a lesson for us, because Satan doesn't always turn up, and I'd argue actually he doesn't ever turn up this way, but he doesn't actually 
turn up wearing horns in a red suit. That's a medieval picture that we, we kind of get used to. Satan doesn't wear horns in a red suit. He doesn't appear in front of us like that. He comes in all sorts of guises seeking to deceive us. Satan rarely shows up in a demonic uh, way of coming along and, 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 and something that's clearly demonic. He doesn't do that. He rarely does that. Satan's way is to come in all sorts of subtle and clever ways and crafty ways and deceiving ways. He is the deceiver. So we need to be wary, don't we? And make sure that we're not deceived as Eve was. When we're faced with a choice like Eve and we face choices every day, will we, will we trust God or will we trust what he said in his word or will we take things into our own hands? We need to make sure that we subject our choices to what God teaches in his word, the Bible. So write this on your outline. We need to make right choices based on what we know is true, the Bible, and not how we feel. So we don't make our choices or we shouldn't make our choices based on what other people are telling us, based on what our circumstances are telling us, based on how we feel today, based on whatever is going on in our life. This is how we choose. This is how we make our decisions and our choices in life. We subject ourselves to the word of God. We make right choices based on what we know is true, not how we feel. Just because something feels good doesn't make it right. Just because those around us who are doing something doesn't make it right. Just because someone who appears to know better than we do, or perhaps has been a Christian for longer than we do, says something, that doesn't mean it's true. The truth is always in this book. It's God's word, and this is truth, and every single choice we make has to be subject to what the Word of God says, to the truth revealed in that. So we need to constantly expose our lives, our behavior, our attitudes, our thoughts, our choices to what the Bible says to ensure that we're not deceived. So when we face those choices, to go back, just like Jesus did when he was being tempted in the, in the desert during those 40 days, and Satan would come before him and say something about the Bible, and Jesus would say, it is written. It is written. Always to subject our choices back to the Word of God. Satan does to Eve what he's been doing throughout history. He questions what God has said. Look at what he says. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That wasn't what God had said at all, was it? God had said that they were free to eat of any tree except one. And Satan, as he always does, was twisting what God had said. And that's so often how Satan works. He, he, he takes perhaps 95, 99% truth and he just puts something in there which is a slight deception, a slight twisting, a distortion of what is truth. And that's why it's so important that we get to know the Bible and understand it so that we can spot those small things which can lead to big errors and big problems and big falls in our life. Not content with twisting God's word, Satan then flatly contradicted what God said. Look at verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. This is the first lie in the Bible. The first lie that is told is here by Satan as he possesses, as he comes in this form of the snake. Satan by, is called by Jesus the father of lies, referring back to this incident. Another of the names of Satan in the Bible is the deceiver. And it's such an accurate name because he loves to deceive us. He loves to deceive God's people. He loves to deceive people everywhere. He loves to lie to us. He did it to Eve. And he does, us, he does it to us today. He comes at us in all different shapes and sizes and disguises and loves to deceive us, loves to lie to us. He deceives us into thinking what is wrong is somehow right. And things that we know are clearly wrong according to the Bible, somehow he twists them and they become right. He deceives us into thinking that sin is good for us. But you know, sin is completely irrational. 
Sin is illogical. Satan's rebellion in heaven was irrational and illogical. He knew he couldn't win, and yet he went ahead and did it. And when we sin, when we fall into temptation, and we give into temptation, and we sin, it is utterly irrational and illogical. If we're honest, we know that it will always have a negative outcome, don't we? We know that sin is never good. It never ends well. And yet we still so often fall for the lie. Satan must have known it when he rebelled against God. He knew he couldn't win, and Eve must have known it in the garden. Why did Eve doubt what God had said? We do it today, don't we? We contemplate doing something, and we know in the end it's going to have a negative result, a negative consequence for ourselves and probably for other people around us. Yet so often we go through with it. And that's what Satan loves to do. He loves to deceive. He tells us a lie, and we fall for it. You'll enjoy it. Go on. It'll be nice. You deserve it. It won't hurt anyone. No one else is looking. No one needs to know. It doesn't really matter. You need it. You deserve it. And he loves to deceive us into thinking that, uh, that, that we can get away with sin and that sin is good for us when sin is so horribly bad for us. And he loves to deceive us not only in the temptation to sin, but he loves to deceive us into thinking that God isn't enough for us and that what God has given us isn't enough. God had given Adam and Eve, everything they needed. And they fell for the lie that there was something more that God was withholding from them. And we do the same. God has given us everything we need, himself and all the things that he provides for us, and he knows best. And yet so often we take life into our own hands. Satan wants to deceive you about God. He wants you to believe that you know better, that I know better than God. He wants us to think that God doesn't know what he's doing with our lives. Surely God's got it wrong. Surely this is the way because this is better for me. The message of Genesis 1 to 3, amongst other things, is that God knows what we need and he has promised to provide us with every good thing we need, not what we want, but what we need, if only we will trust him and obey him. That is the message in a, in a nutshell of Genesis 1 to 3 in this uh, study we're looking at this morning. God knows what we need and he's promised to provide us with every good thing we need. So write that on your outline. I need to trust God that he knows what he's doing with my life and that he always tells the truth. I need to trust God that he always knows what he's doing with my life and that he always tells the truth. But Satan deceives Eve in the same way that he does us. He seeks to deceive us so that we doubt God and we doubt his goodness and we think that God's made a mistake. And we think, well, my situation in my life, surely God's got this wrong. Surely God's got to give me something I want. And so we take matters into our own hands. We, we, we fail to trust God that he is sufficient and that what he's given is sufficient. Maybe in your life this morning, there's, there's things going on in your life. Situations, problems, things not working out for you the way that you would have liked, the way that you had planned. Satan wants you, in the midst of those struggles, in the midst of those testing times, to turn away from God and not trust him. Satan wants you to think that you can't trust God with your life. He wants you to think that God isn't in control, that he can't be trusted, that God doesn't know what he's doing. If only I had a husband. If only I had a wife. If only I had a better job, a better husband, a better wife, better kids, a bigger house. If only I had these things, then I would be fulfilled. As if God isn't sufficient for us. As if God's provisions for us are not sufficient for us. If only I get this next thing, then I will be complete. Then my life will be fulfilled. And it's a deception. It's a lie because Christ is all we need. And Christ gives us all we need. Satan wants us to take matters into our own hands. And that's what Eve did. 
The tree of the knowledge of good and evil became a tree of rebellion against God, a woman who doubted God and refused to trust him. Eve refused to trust that God was sufficient for her. Eve refused to trust God that the things he'd provided for her were sufficient. She was deceived into thinking that she knew better than God did and that she needed more than God had given her. And so she ate the tree, she ate the fruit from the tree. Not only did she eat, but she gave it to her husband. And he ate, and then it all went horribly wrong. The Bible tells us that Eve was deceived, but it was Adam who rebelled against God. That's what Paul writes in the New Testament. He wasn't deceived. He made a conscious choice to rebel against God. Romans 5, verse 12, speaking of that exact moment in history, says this, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So at this point, we have our third type of tree, the trees that Adam and Eve hid from God in. They're the trees that speak of a broken relationship with God. Trees that were once God's provision have become trees to hide in, to try and hide from the all-present God, as foolish as that is. Because in the moment that they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were opened to things that they had previously not seen. Eve's problem was that she didn't trust God with the knowledge that he'd given her. She believed that he was holding something back from her because, he was, because she was deceived by Satan. And in that moment, as Adam, representing all humanity, because we've all descended from Adam, so we were all in Adam, in that moment, through their disobedience, their relationship with God was wrecked. God did know best. But they doubted him, and they took matters into their own hands. And instead of living in a relationship with God, now they were trying to hide from him in the trees. Utterly crazy thing to do. But knowing that they'd sinned against him. And we do that, don't we? You know, we hide in all sorts of places. We, we, we don't come to church because we think, you know, that... We, we, we avoid phone calls, we avoid speaking to people, we avoid picking up our Bibles we, because we know we sinned, as if somehow we can run away from the all-seeing, all-knowing God. When God confronts Adam, Adam does what we all do. He passes the buck. Look what he says. The woman you put here with me, it's your fault, God. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's your fault, God, and it's her fault, not my fault. We all do that, don't we? When we sin, it's everybody else's fault, it's not my fault. Adam has the nerve to blame God. It's your fault, God. If you hadn't created it, this wouldn't have, this, this wouldn't have happened. You put her here. And we're so good at doing that, aren't we? we? We blame our environment. We blame our friends. We blame our parents. We blame schooling. We blame the government. It's never our fault. It's always somebody else's fault. What God really wants is for us to face up to the truth and accept our responsibility for our sin. Nobody forces us to sin. Nobody forces us to take matters into our own hands. Nobody forces us to walk away from God. When we do that, we have to face up to the reality of that. To confess our sins, to repent, and turn back once more in faith to Christ, and to turn away from them. You know, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, sin, sin entered into the world in that moment, and all hell literally was let loose. What a mess it's called. Something has gone badly wrong, hasn't it, on our little planet. All around us we see problems. And newspapers are full of problems. TV's full of problems. Our world is full of problems. Since 1945, there hasn't been a single day when a, a war hasn't been waging somewhere in the world. Millions have been killed in the last hundred years. There were more people who died in the last century than the previous 19 combined. All because of naked greed and selfishness and the madness of some political leaders caused by sin. Families are torn to pieces. Marriages fail. Children get hurt. Millions live addicted to drugs and alcohol. Millions are dying from preventable diseases. People are afraid to go out, tonight, to go out at night. People are attacked for mobile phones. Big businesses, banks collapse. 
because their managers have committed fraud. Even just this week, a massive fraud we've seen on the TV, haven't we, in the car industry. Driven by sin. Our environment is slowly being poisoned and damaged by people desperate to make money. I'm not trying to be depressing, but if we're honest, it really isn't a pretty picture, is it? But why? Why is the world in such a mess? Well, Romans 5 teaches us that because Adam sinned, and we all descend from Adam, and we were in Adam, as it were, when he sinned. We are all sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Romans teaches us that because we are physically descended from Adam, we, are in, we were in Adam when he sinned. It, it's as if we were the ones sinning there back in the garden. Paul says in Romans 5.19, through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. And ultimately, every problem in this world can be traced back to either an individual person's sin, my sin, your sin, or someone else's sin, or right the way back to Adam's first sin there in the garden, what we call original sin. And through Adam, we've inherited, the Bible teaches, this sinful nature. We're born with it. There's no such thing as a, as a good child. Every child is conceived in sin because the parents are sinful. And so each one of us, we don't have to teach a child to do wrong, do we? We're, we're, we're sinners. And when God confronts Adam with his sin, the judgment that follows is terrible. The harmony of marriage is ruined. No longer will Adam exercise godly leadership and loving headship over his wife. Instead, it will be changed. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. God says that Adam will now rule over Eve. And the word indicates a harshness and an unpleasantness. And in turn, Eve will no longer be that willing helper that God had created her to be. She'll now desire her husband's authority and rebel against his God-given authority. Conflict had been introduced to marriage and to relationships in general. And no longer would God freely provide for Adam and Eve. Look at verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. From now on, only through hard and painful uh, and unpleasant work would the ground produce fruit, food. And verse 19 introduces the severest judgment of all, death. Look at what God says to Adam and therefore to us. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam and his wife Eve would die physically, as we all since then have to face. But greater than the physical death was the spiritual death that now hung over humanity. They were physically alive, but now they were spiritually dead because they were separated from God. Adam and Eve were hiding from God. They were naked, not just physically, but spiritually. And the relationship that they'd once had with God had gone horribly wrong. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Can we have that up on the screen, Paul? Cheers. The wages of sin is death. Sin is real. When you go to work for a week, you get the wages, don't you, at the end of the week. Some of you might get less wages than you'd like, but the wages of sin is exactly what we deserve. It's death. Sin brings terrible consequences. God had warned them, but they'd rejected God's provision and they'd abandoned their trust in him. The fourth tree that we look at is a cruel tree, but it's a wonderful tree. It's a tree of justice and judgment, but it's also a tree of grace and mercy and love. A tree of justice and judgment, but a tree also of grace and mercy and love. Everything had just gone horribly wrong. Mankind in Adam and Eve had, re had rejected God. They'd failed to trust him. They'd disobeyed him, and him and, and their lives and our lives were ruined because of it. But out of that catastrophe, out of the smoldering ruins of what could have been, out of the mess that Adam and Eve created, God promises a great solution. Despite mankind going its own way and rejecting God, God now has this wonderful opportunity to display his love and his grace and his mercy to us. Look at verse 15. 
God is speaking to Satan directly and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The woman, God says, is going to produce offspring. A descendant of Eve's is going to come. And there's going to be confrontation between this physical descendant of Eve's and Satan himself. And God uses this picture of a man stamping on a snake's head to destroy it. But as he he stamps and destroys the snake, the snake also bites the man's heel and wounds him and injures him. And this picture that God gives is pointing forward to a real physical descendant of Eve's. And this physical descendant of Eve's was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. God become man. He was her, physically he was her offspring. And it describes what he would do to Satan when he came. Jesus would crush Satan just like a person stamping on a snake's head. But in doing so, the snake would strike the heel, would strike Satan would strike Jesus. And using this picture language, God introduces the solution. God will send his son, a physical descendant of Eve, and he will deal with Satan once and for all. And 4,000 years later, God entered into this world in the person of Jesus. And through the miracle of the incarnation and the virgin birth, God became a man. He never ceased to be God, but the human nature that he took upon himself can be traced right back to Adam himself, if you look at Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. Galatians 4 verse 4 says this, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. The one promise came and he dealt with Satan and he dealt with sin and he dealt with death. And as Jesus laid down his life on the tree, that tree, this fourth tree that had been shaped into a cross, as he allowed himself to be crucified, Satan struck. And it seemed as if Satan had won. He had struck Jesus' heel, as it were. But what Satan didn't understand was that Jesus was doing something far bigger. He wasn't just having a physical death on a cross. Jesus was being punished for all your sin, for all my sin, for all the mess-ups and foul-ups of this whole sin-sick world. And Jesus was there in our place, taking taking all our sins upon himself, taking the punishment of a holy, righteous God for himself. He took our place, took the place of all that ever lived. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree tree is just a a way the Bible talks about the cross. The cross cross had once been a tree. The tree was now a symbol of God's justice and judgment. But God's judgment upon his son means God's love and grace and mercy for you and me because Jesus was punished. We don't need to be. Isn't that amazing? Because Jesus took all our foul-ups and our screw-ups and our mess-ups, we can get free. We can be forgiven. We can be made right with God. When Jesus on that tree shouted out, It is finished! He had dealt with sin. He had dealt with Satan, just as a snake is crushed by stamping on it. And as Jesus rose from the dead three days later, the final enemy of mankind, death, was defeated and is no longer an issue for us. And for those of us this morning that have trusted in Jesus, who've surrendered our lives to him, God has removed our sins. Not only has he forgiven us, but he's now given us the righteousness, the perfection, the holiness of Jesus, and he's given it to us, and he thinks of it as belonging to us. So that when God looks at you and me this morning, not only are we forgiven, but we're as right, we're as perfect as Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised at the first, as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. We still live under the effects of the tragedy of the garden. The world is still a mess. Relationships aren't what they should be. But it's now possible to have that relationship back with God through Jesus. 
the relationship that we were created for. And when Jesus comes again, then he will roll this world up as it were. And he will deal with Satan. Death will no longer exist. Sin will be gone. Satan, the Bible says, will be thrown into a lake of fire, an eternal lake of fire. And those that have trusted in Jesus will live with him forever. Isn't that fantastic? No? Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that fantastic? Amen. Fantastic. This world is a mess. Sin is horrible. It is foul. It is horrendous. But God has made a way back. As we close this morning, I want to challenge you. If you are a follower of Jesus, but you've fallen for one of Satan's lies, if this morning you are trying to hide in the trees, as it were, because you've messed up, because you didn't trust God, don't stay there. Don't stay hiding in the trees. That's futile. It's pointless. You're already forgiven. Come back and, and, and come back to God and, and, and just enjoy that fellowship. If you've messed up because you didn't trust God, don't stay there. Come back to God. Receive His love and His grace. Maybe this morning you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you know that this world is a mess, that's for sure. You know that your life is also not what it should be and at times is a mess. Then why not take that step today and ask Jesus into your life and ask Him to be your Lord and Saviour? Confess your own sin. Admit your own part in this world's mess. Thank Jesus for dying in your place there on that tree, that cross. Ask him to forgive you and pledge yourself to follow him. Let's just bow our heads and have a few moments of silence before God as we consider this morning where we stand. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're hiding in the trees, don't stay there. That's just futility, stupid. Come back to God. Come back to Jesus.